Welcome to this episode of the Health Advocate Podcast. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I'm the Director of the Deedle Institute for Health Policy Research at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Teresa Anderson, Chief Executive of Sydney Local Health District. Teresa is also an internationally recognised speech pathologist and a member of the Order of Australia. Today she's going to be speaking to us about virtual hospitals. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rebecca. Teresa, what is a virtual hospital? Rebecca, a virtual hospital is many things. For us, RPA Virtual is uh, complementary to our other health services. And I think to explain what it is, is to talk a little bit about our journey. And I have to say that last year I was on a study tour to Israel in October. And we had been undertaking a lot of telemedicine, telehealth for many, many years, and we wanted to increase that. But while I was away, I got the plans for the redevelopment of RPA and saw the size of the emergency department, which would be almost as large as Canterbury Hospital, and thought we really have to do something differently. And so I gave my staff the task of setting up the virtual hospital by the end of January 2020, so three months. And we in fact commenced on the 3rd of February, which was really lucky that we did because without RPA Virtual, we would not have been able to respond um, to the COVID pandemic in the way that we have. So for us, initially, the journey was about looking at differentiated patients who didn't need to go to the emergency department and to provide them with alternates to a hospital presentation. And we started with a model that looked at various cohorts rather than just sort of looking at every patient. So the initial cohorts were palliative care patients, not just in the last week or two of life, but those patients who had been identified as requiring palliation in the community. Patients with significant wounds that needed to be effectively managed and our patients with cystic fibrosis and in fact part of the genesis of the idea of RPA virtual actually came from our cystic fibrosis patients themselves because as you know they don't want to come to hospital they prefer to be treated away from hospital but we need to monitor and carefully manage their symptoms together and so they had actually put up a pitch with our staff sort of early last year about using more wearables and self-monitoring in the community and being able to feed that back to the clinical team. So we took those learnings and incorporated them into RPA Virtual. And what we wanted to do was to give people confidence that RPA Virtual is not secondary care. It's not Uh, substandard care, that it's high quality care that's linked to the rest of the patient's care. So we were really clear about establishing effective governance. So we set it up as a hospital with a general manager, with the director of nursing, with the appropriate executive and clinical director providing clinical governance and leadership. We linked it with our Sydney district nursing because not everything can be done virtually. Sometimes you actually need a face-to-face human being and 
we transferred our Sydney District Nursing into the virtual hospital to provide that physical contact with the patient. And we made sure that the links with our specialist services and general practitioners were also strong. Because as with any hospital, it's not just about one model of care. It's about how it's integrated into the patient's entire journey. And so, as you know, at the end of January, COVID came along and very quickly it became obvious that we needed to be supporting people who are COVID positive, who were isolating at home, and we wanted visibility of that. So we developed an algorithm and a model of care in partnership with those patients, providing them with pulse oximeters at home, undertaking assessments and then regular monitoring. So with the COVID positive patients that we've had, we have undertaken monitoring on a regular basis. So for hourly monitoring with some of our patients, just as if they'd be on a ward. For some, depending on their symptoms, they might be having more contact or less contact. And where required, we would have our nursing staff physically attend the patient's home. But at the end of March, as you know, when COVID was escalating, we got a call from the ministry to meet on the 27th of March to say that all returning passengers through the airports who are symptomatic would require isolation in the health accommodation, uh, which we very quickly established. And those who were not symptomatic would go to the police accommodation. And if they became symptomatic, they would come to the health accommodation. So very quickly, we set up basically 315 beds within the community in health hotels, which aren't like a normal hotel. They have a full staffing, they have nursing staff, allied health staff. We've learned as we've gone, the psychological stress of being quarantined and being COVID positive or suspected of being COVID is quite significant. And so we have learnt to add to RPA virtual psychological support and other allied health support. And so RPA virtual has really morphed over this time. And what it's actually taught us is that we can manage patient groups that we really didn't think that we could manage effectively in the community with high quality clinical support, not only from RPA virtual, but very much from our specialist teams. So in the health accommodation, we've now had over 600 patients. Not all of them are COVID positive. Some of them are negative or pending their results, but they are increasingly having a whole range of other clinical issues, antenatal issues. IVF issues, uh, paediatric cases, people with chronic diseases who don't really need to be in hospital as long as they've got the appropriate support because we don't want to overwhelm the health system and our beds. And the feedback that we've had from the patients has been remarkable, and I know we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, for me, RPA Virtual is complementing the other aspects of our care. It isn't a substitution and it isn't a lower quality care. Teresa, you've touched on the idea of integrated care. Do you see opportunities for better integration in the future? Absolutely. I think that 
having and and I have a strong belief that virtual hospitals should be completely integrated with our other health services. They shouldn't be these standalone things in another, you know, um, multi-story building somewhere in the middle of whoop whoop. I really believe that all health services should be looking at complementing their existing health services with virtual models of care, which aren't just about taking an existing model of care and making it virtual. It's really about thinking very carefully about what are the needs of the patient and what are the things that we need to do face-to-face and in person and what are the things that we can do virtually that can supplement and complement that care to give us better outcomes for our patients. You know, it's not just going to a cheaper version. It is really about saying what is in the best interest of the patient. And we know that from a convenience perspective, many of our patients have to take, you know, hours out of their busy lives to come and have their health appointments. And because of that, many don't come because they've got other things, other priorities. So I think the use of virtual healthcare will show that we will have better reach, better um, compliance, better access, Mm -hmm. and in the end, better self-management. Because at the end of the day, what we all want is that that our patients are given the support to have autonomy and self-determination, that they have the chance to manage their own health conditions with us being members of their team and supporting them and supporting their general practitioner. So being able to do joint case conferences with the patient and the general practitioner and the specialist or being able to see each other, read each other's body language, um, you know, participate in the, the care planning for the patient. I think virtual healthcare gives us a really strong tool. So Teresa, what's their response been to this model and how are they engaging with it? Yeah, so when we first started, we said that we didn't want people to think this was a lesser care. So people were enrolled in RPA Virtual. They were given a membership card with all of the benefits of membership. And we are looking at giving people membership points. So in terms of supporting compliance with medication management, with physical activity, whatever it might be, giving people points and supporting them. So we have uh, done a clinical trial with a medication compliance app that some young inventors uh, came to me with. And so we're doing a proper randomized clinical trial. It's almost complete where people are supported in their medication management and reinforced by getting a fruit basket, you know, at the end of each month. um, Can I get this? Have actually undertaken their their medication. Can I use my points at the petrol station? Yes, well, you never know. Uh, I'm trying. I think at at some point we need to negotiate with our industry partners about those points. I think there are lots of opportunities there, but people need positive reinforcement. But in terms of, it's really interesting. I think we've all made an assumption that the virtual hospital would be really good for young people, and I have to say, young people really do like the virtual hospital. And in fact, there's a young singer, Jaguar Jones, that you might be familiar with. And her real name is Dina Lynch. She's a fabulous young person who is COVID positive. 
and she has taught us a lot in relation to what's good and what we should be continuing to do around virtual health. And she um, she's actually joined us for webinars with our staff to talk about what the virtual hospital means to her. And she was indicating a lot of young people don't want to come to hospitals and health services because they don't want to burden the health service. And she found that being able to be cared for at home with the wireless pulse oximeter, having the wearable devices to monitor her temperature, et cetera, and being able to escalate when she needed to come to hospital when she needed to, because many of our patients have actually ended up in hospital, but we've been able to rapidly escalate them. But we found that RPA Virtual doesn't just have good acceptance by young people, but by older people. And in fact, 80% of our patients felt confident at home that their symptoms were being monitored daily and by you know, really highly skilled nursing and medical staff. That 72% found the wearables easy to use, which was much higher than I anticipated. And with additional training and support, that our use was even better. 71% of our patients found that the video conferencing was easy to use all of the time. So we've made it really easy. We send a package to the person's home. So it has a special iPad, which really only needs you to press one button to get you onto the nursing staff. And it, it has Bluetooth connections to the various wearables. So for our patients with cystic fibrosis, we've given them Bluetooth barometers. Um, for example, the pulse oximeters have been really very helpful. The temperature monitors have been, again, very successful. We've used it as a way of, of checking different devices. Some work, some don't. And I think we'll continue on that journey. But 89% of our patients said the technologies that we used helped to provide high quality care to them much higher than I anticipated. You know, I, I thought we would be successful if most of the feedback was in the sort of 70s, given that it was a fairly new service. To get in the 80s and 90s was a bit remarkable for me. It's very encouraging, isn't it? So, Teresa, what evidence do you have that virtual hospitals are an effective model of care, particularly in terms of patient outcomes and systems costs? Yeah, good question. So I can't answer all of that yet. We are working with Andrew Wilson with the University of Sydney with the Menzies Institute to formally evaluate RPA Virtual and we'd started that. We actually developed the evaluation model before we saw our first patient and the cohort model that we're taking was very deliberate so that we could see for which patient groups would this be effective or not. And as I said, what we've found during the COVID pandemic is that it's been useful for supporting patients with conditions that we weren't anticipating because of the need to, to monitor them in the special health accommodation. So one of the areas that we're really excited about is that next week, we will be commencing mental health arm of RPA Virtual to support our wonderful community mental health staff. We do have an issue with reach in community mental health. We've got consumers who really don't want to have uh, people coming to their home or 
is they find it uh, intrusive having those very regular visits. We're looking at medication management in terms of the clozapine clinic, being able to do that virtually using Bluetooth medication dispensing gadgets. There is a special name for them, I can't remember. But we believe that by doing this, particularly with mental health, that we will be able to engage our mental health consumers in a much deeper way. Being able to have face-to-face conversations takes us into the patient's home in a different way than if we went physically. So it's really about supplementing and complementing what we do and working on those algorithms. You know, what does it work best for? We don't want to have second-class care We want to have first-class care. We want to have excellent care. And we believe that if we do it in the right way and we look at the best available evidence and we're contributing to that evidence, that we will end up with the appropriate models for the community that we serve. So I think it's about contributing to that, that evidence. If you look, there's actually you know, reasonable literature about aspects of virtual health. I mean, we've all been using virtual health for a long time. In rural areas in particular, people have been very skilled at providing clinical care at a distance, but it shouldn't be completely a substitution because what we want is that the technology helps to strengthen our relationship with the patient that it is a new way of caring. It's a new way of forming a deeper relationship with our patients and us increasing our availability to the patients at a time that suits them. So with mental health patients and visiting them in the community, often it's really challenging because we've got to fit in a whole range of patients, uh, you know, and it might not always be convenient for the patient. Having the virtual support enables us to have a little bit more flexibility as well as fitting in with what the patient wants. And at the end of the day, we're going to get much better compliance if we work with the patient and their needs and the plan truly is around them rather than around us and our convenience. Do you think the virtual model of care will be adopted more widely post-pandemic? And what do you see as some of the major challenges to this happening? Yeah, I absolutely do, uh, because I think we've demonstrated that you can effectively manage complex patients in the community with the appropriate support. I do think it, as I said, it has to be embedded within the health service and you have to have a physical way of going and seeing the patient if you need to, or escalating to get the patient admitted to hospital if you need to. 9% of our patients get admitted, admitted to hospital. So that's quite a lot but we get them early because we can escalate really quickly. I think that getting everyone in the community confident in the skills and ability of the people who are providing the virtual health service and we rotate staff through so that they continue to have face-to-face experience with clients as well as um, undertaking care virtually The virtual hospital is set up like a hospital. It has safety huddles, it has handover, it has multidisciplinary team meetings. It has all of the governance structures that you would normally have in a hospital. And I think that's really important. Where I've seen virtual care not succeed 
is that it hasn't got the right governance established from day one. You know, we've been able to quickly scale up from basically having two virtual hospital pods to now 19 and we function 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So our patients are confident that there's always going to be someone at the end of that phone who will link them in with their specialist services. So, you know, we've had patients with cardiac issues where they talk to the registrar in the virtual hospital who can immediately get a cardiologist on the line. They can have a conversation like you and I are having now. They can then make a determination of what's what that patient's plan of management should be, whether they need to come to hospital, whether they need to to have uh, increased monitoring, a change in their medications, etc. What about funding, Teresa, to make the program more feasible in the longer term? Yes, so we've worked closely with New South Wales Health, who have been very supportive of the approach that we've taken. New South Wales Health are involved in the evaluation steering committee, which I think is really important because we don't want to be doing things that just make us feel good. And we think, oh, that was very nice. It's really about saying, well, what does the evidence say? Who did it work for? Who didn't it work for? What were the learnings? We've engaged with the um, New South Wales Health Ministry Uh, costing branch and so we're undertaking a bottom-up costing study so that we really understand how much it's cost for the different cohorts because it it has been different because the intensity and involvement varies depending on the cohort that we're managing so the costing studies although may seem a little boring are very exciting to me because this will tell us whether or not that this is a viable addition to the health system and as I said if we can get this to work hopefully the emergency department at RPA will not have to be as large as the figures are currently suggesting but it's not just about emergency departments it really is about looking at all of our services and what's appropriate um, and what's not and I think like all of us when we said we were going to have a virtual hospital by the end of January. There are a lot of people who were really skeptical, who thought it would be half-baked, who, you know, senior clinicians who said, no, I always have to do face-to-face care. Anything else is substandard. But with COVID, we've all had to think on our feet quite differently. And a significant number of our outpatient care is now being provided virtually with high quality Many of our services were doing this. So epilepsy, we've always, well, for, you know, 15 years have been providing epilepsy services to rural and remote areas virtually with their clinicians within those areas. I think one of the real risks with virtual health, particularly for rural and remote areas, is people in metropolitan tertiary hospitals thinking that they can provide care virtually to the rural hospitals as a substitution for good care within those rural hospitals. Um, I think if you do it the right way in partnership with rural and remote areas, you can actually build capacity. You can increase the number of people who are going to want to go and live and work in rural areas because they know they've got the backup of tertiary and quaternary health services at a finger press that that they're supported in their areas rather than us detracting from them. 
you know, the fly in, fly out of rural and remote areas, I think has been a really big challenge being able to have people, clinicians within rural and remote areas that have that support virtually where you can have, you know, meetings with the patient, with the specialist, with the GP or the local specialist, having MDTs in a way that we've never been able to have before. I think everyone around Australia now has found that our attendance rates at MDTs are the best we've ever had because VMOs and, and others in their rooms have had, had difficulty in getting to MDTs. Now they can come in for their patients and go out. I think in terms of, you know, M&Ms, et cetera, we've had the best attendances we've ever had because people can join remotely. They get access to all of the information through the screen sharing. I think we're all getting better at screen sharing. So, you know, I think that there are so many benefits that it adds, but it is about people thinking differently as not making assumptions and saying, well, that cohort won't use virtual health. We need to go back to the patient and saying, you know, well, what do you want? What will work for you? You know, people often say to me, but I don't have, you know, a whiz bang computer, therefore I can't do Zoom. Well, we know all you need to do is go and buy a $120 camera that you can put on your, um, on your laptop and then you can join most of these platforms quite easily. New South Wales Health, as other states are, are investing in the, the platforms that support providing virtual health care. I know it's been more difficult for general practice, but there are a lot of GPs who are also finding that they can do this better. I think the new Medicare items are certainly going to make a difference. I think the documentation is really critical, mm -hmm. making sure that people realise that if you are providing virtual care, it is the same as providing physical care and you need to document it well. Mm -hmm. And I do believe strongly that we shouldn't be paid for anything that we don't document. Um, Teresa, what about the more vulnerable populations that might not have access to some of this technology? Yeah, so I think that that's where we need to do the cost-benefit analysis that says that a iPad and wearables um, and monitoring people in their home who don't need admission to hospital is actually much cheaper than admitting them to hospital. So those costing studies become really important. But we give the iPad and the devices to the patient. They're not purchasing them. And we've identified ways of being able to appropriately clean them, etc. But for me, for many of our vulnerable communities, if we never get the iPad back um, and we've been able to provide them with effective care and they didn't need admission to hospital or didn't need admission to hospital for as long, that has been a really great outcome. Teresa, thank you for a fantastic discussion today. Thank you. I'm really uh, appreciative of getting to talk to you today, Rebecca. Thank you.